two wrestling fans to talk through the list of matches that the doyen of wrestling fans, if you ask some people, and the dumbass of wrestling fans, if you ask others, Dave Meltzer, has rated five stars or higher. It's Let Me Tell You Something. I'm your co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and with me is my co-host... Simon Cross. And Simon, we are back in North America. We're back in WCW, as it is now at this point, definitely. No NWAs or anything like that. And we have got another gimmick match. The previous one that we covered was an I Quit match between Ric Flair and Terry Funk. And we have one more Ric Flair gimmick match to go. And it's going to be one of the most famous gimmicks to ever come from WCW. Maybe the most famous gimmick of all. And it is War Games. Our first War Games match in this set. And it's pitting, as was often the case, the Four Horsemen against a collection of babyfaces. Although, unfortunately... The perennial horseman and the perennial war games participant, Arn Anderson, is unfortunately out with an injury in this match and has been replaced by Larry Zabisco. Never an and official his glorious rug of chest hair. Yes, and his fantastic mullet. Um, the, uh, never an horseman, a future Dangerous Alliance member and tag team partner of Anderson. So not entirely out of place. He's definitely got a bit of the Tully Blanchard little shithouse... Uh, Going like like Masafushi in our previous match as well. And we're also seeing for the first time an appearance from all of these baby faces, Sting, Brian Pillman, and the Steiner brothers. It might be some of their only appearances. And of course, as we said in the previous episode, Brian Danielson, aka Daniel Bryan, has no five star matches to his record at time of recording. However, Sid I have half the brain that you do, Vicious, <laughs> has one to his name, and it is this one. It's as, as I'm watching this for the research, and he walks down the ramp, I'm still like, is this right? <laughs> well, like, Sid Vicious has never looked out of place as far as being a wrestler is concerned. Oh, no, no, he looks... Especially chiselled here. Yeah, there as might well. be very few wrestlers that have looked better than Sid. I mean, I always, when we did our uh, best entrances, I counted the entrance he made for the 1996 Survivor Series at Madison Square Garden as one of my four favourite non WrestleMania entrances because he just exuded so much danger and, and charisma and mystique to him. I suppose it's the blonde hair. Against the size and the square jaw and, you know, his his genuine eccentricities that we will see in this match as well. Uh, eccentricities being a kind way of putting it. But this is also our first War Games match. Now, Sai, I believe you are a fan of the War Games format. Is that correct? I, I, I love War Games. Um, I had only really watched the NXT ones beforehand, but... Like the concept is brilliant, um, and I was excited at the fact that as part of what we're doing here, I get to I got to watch one of the OG War Games matches, so to speak. And I was surprised by um, 
I wouldn't call it one OG. The... There will have been dozens of... War... Essentially, the War Games was... a One of the reasons it was recreated was for... I don't know if it was for the Great American Bash, but it was around the time that Joe McCrockett Promotions would have these big summer-long tours. And it was the perfect way to do matches involving the Four Horsemen. And they were very often faced off against the likes of Dusty Rose, Nikita Koloff, the Road Warriors. Sometimes J.J. Dillon and Paul Ellering would get involved, Bubba Rogers and others. Um... But yeah, I, I understand. Like, um, you see what I mean compared to like the it, ones. It's been around since '87, but it was the first yeah. of the WCW versions. I think the previous one had been back in 1989, so it had been a two-year hiatus. And at this point, it then became like an annual fixture. First mm. at the Wrestle Wars '91 and '92, and then it was a fixture in Fall Brawl from '93 to '98. I want to say. Um, and then they had one in the, on Nitro, a version of it on Nitro, which was the one that ended up somehow making Vince Russo the WCW champion. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not to give uh, you, like, a, horrible. Yeah, a, 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 horrible. Like, get your hand on some Pepto-Bismol or something now to sell your stomach. Uh. I told you that. But, um, I'm going to make my controversial statement here now. I'm not mm. as big a fan of the war games as it was sometimes presented in WCW as others do, where it seems like loads of people just give it automatic five stars and they love it to pieces. Okay. For the simple facts of... Now, I believe, I also think that the two WWE versions of war games were a bit overproduced. But I feel like these matches are underproduced. Yeah, we've had that on- comment. Um, we had that comment privately about especially the most recent one yeah with undisputed era you've you've had that thought yeah it, it felt a bit well it's too long for a start i think the whole thing went about 47 minutes it did mm-hmm. it could have been at least 10 minutes shorter than that they really bought into like the whole match beyond thing and yeah it's just very clearly orchestrated organized spots throughout the whole match but particularly when all eight men are in the ring or when it was the uh, first version of War Games they did, that was really modelled on the 98 Fall Brawl, which is often seen as one of the worst pay-per-views, and that was one of the worst matches of that pay-per-view of all time, uh, where it was NWA, NWO, Hollywood, NWO, Wolfpack, WCW in, in three te- three-man combinations. Um, and, of course, what's also interesting about this is the, the, the ceilings there, so, which was one of the inspirations Jim Cornette took for the Hell in a Cell. He essentially took the ceiling from War Games... And the cage from the Memphis wrestling that had like an area outside the ring to allow them to fight on the outside. And just and merged, merged it together. It together to make the Hell in a Cell match. Um, but the ceiling is an issue for Brian Pillman in this match in particular. Yeah. Uh, well, at first he uses it to his advantage. Well, I don't um, use it to his advantage as much as he uses it as a necessity. Because he wants to do a top rope dropkick, but if he jumps as high as he will usually do, his head will crack the ceiling. Yeah. So he has to sort of hang on to the ceiling in order to do his moves. Yeah, because um, Pillman and Wyndham uh, start the match. Mm. Wyndham, I must say, I don't know if it's because he walked down the ring with Sid. Does not look as tall here. I don't, no, I I think... don't know if I, dis- I would disagree with that. It really puts me how tall he was, that he was only a few inches shorter than Sid. Mm. Maybe I just like had Sid just. You know what Sid the problem is? Taller. Maybe it's just because his physique is not is even less impressive than it used to be. Yeah, yeah. So, again, so when you stand him next to a chiselled, 
muscle mass of, of giant Sid, it can make him look junior heavyweightish yeah. or something. Yeah, um, which he obviously isn't. But it's interesting as well that the story of the match is clearly focused. If there is a story in the match, more than anything, is Pillman's injury and Pillman yeah. fighting against the odds. And they they say at the start. Because he sees Barry Windham in the ring, and it's Barry Windham that injured him in the first place, he wants his revenge immediately. And, and um, ignores of... the tactical briefing and just yeah. runs in. Screws up the order and goes into the match. And that then pays off towards the end. Although they, they all target his shoulder. But this is the thing about these matches. There's a lot of chaos, but there's no... Like, like I said, in the WWE one, there were maybe too many spots. In this, there are too few. There seems yeah. to be one spot that they all agree on when they are all the four baby faces have figure four leg locks on all the four heels. Yeah. But other than and that... You're right. Apart from that, and apart from the start, where I've got Pillman hitting the low blow because he, hate, cause he well, hates Wyndham so I much. Just put it and as... like bite, biting his open cut as yeah. well. I just wrote it as punched him in the dick. <laughs> just squ- like full on. It's like a like um rabbit punch as well. It's like a hook mm. kind of. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's just the fact that P- Wyndham bleeds so early, and I thought a heel bleeding first like is quite weird. Anyway, well, it's only heels that bleed in this match. Wyndham bleeds and Flair bleeds. Yeah, but Flair bleeding is like Flair just sneezed, and that's <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say. The amount of times Flair's face is grated into the cage, by the way. I'm amazed we didn't That's see it in his skull. Like, there's only so many things that happen in these matches when it's the WCW ones. It's just they fight in corners. Yeah. Babyface will jump from one ring to the other ring. And they'll take it in turns rubbing their face against the cage mesh. Now, it works within the sense if you just want a chaotic fight. Yeah. that time period that's really... And that kind of leans into more the I Quit match, Ric Flair, Terry Funk, where they have a a chaotic brawl. Mm. But I just, it makes the match, the way I put it, it's not, this match is maybe not as bad with it because we're, we're kind of going into the finish because there isn't that much to talk about other than the excitement of who's the next one's come in. And it's pretty much always the same flow. First five minutes, the baby face will usually dominate the heel. And then the heel always wins the coin toss. They always win the, coin, win the toss. coin toss. Because so it wouldn't always, make any other sense otherwise. So it's always two heels fighting against one face. And they are always got the one person advantage. So it's always, when the heels are the one person advantage, they control. When the faces even up the odds, the faces usually have control. It's not always like exact science, but it's usually along those lines. Uh, eventually. And then the match beyond happens, and then it just sort of happens. The thing that bothers me, and it's not, and it's will happen in the other ones, is like no one is paying attention to the other play, people in peril. Yeah, like there are matches, there are war games matches where someone has the the, the baby the one, the winning team has the submission hold on the heel team, and you know it's the finish because suddenly the referee needs to be in the ring to call the submission. Yeah, and there will be people on the vict- on the losing team that are in control of their fights, and they don't go and stop it from happening so yeah like they sort of get a, preoccupied that's what they're told have a fight and and that's it and then it's just the match is over and they all sort of stand there and walk off yeah it's um especially at the end of this one it's just like oh 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 we're done because yeah. i don't want to like skip to the finish um well, lot, like i said there's not a lot i don't have a huge amount of, of notes for it you know um, um i just got that the sting looks good yeah. Um, all the baby faces look 
good when they come in. They like they, because it, they're because the, they're evening up the odds. And there is one spot from Sting I did quite like when he gets Flair in the military press slam yes, and it's like and, just slams him against the roof of the cage repeatedly because yeah. it's the nearest thing he's got. That was a common spot. It was some of the Road Warriors would always do when they were in those sort of matches. I think Steve yeah. Williams does it in his match. Um, well, Steve Williams, it, I think Steve Williams would touch that roof. I think he did it to Terry Gordy actually. Jesus, this was pre-Miracle Violence Connection. I was going to say, how the hell is he going to like not break the roof of the cage yeah. in two? Uh, I do like. I do like what I do like is when they're waiting to go in, like uh, when Scott's about to go in. Nick Patrick's literally holding him by the waist until yeah. the countdown's over to let him in, and then Scott's free. Or when Sting's about to come in, Flair realizes it's going to happen and waits at the door to meet him, and Sting still. Beats the crap out of him, but then, when Sting. Z- but then on the other hand, when Zabisco comes in, Sting's on top of him, and he's actually able to hold him off for a while, and so they don't get the advantage to begin with. Yeah. Um, what do you think of Sid very clearly talking to several people during the match? Uh, I didn't pick up on it so much. Um, not even with him and Rick Steiner. No, no, I, 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 I'll be honest. Oh my god, this. I can't. Even as someone, I'm not somebody who likes to obsess about those sort of things. Like you know, when you do the everyone talks too much bit on a uh, on Botchmania, I've never usually noticed those things. Yeah, usually, sometimes you can't help but notice. But that one, it's so obvious. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I get a little bit thrown about sometimes um, with cameras and stuff, and I don't want to go too deep into our world of sport series where we spent 10 weeks slagging off a production truck but the camera angles sometimes in this match leave a lot to be desired when it pans out to about the hard cam i can't tell anything that's happening for well, that I entire like shot what it really helps they do have three cameramans inside each yeah. of them sort of hemmed against the wall of one of the cages yeah. and, and i will in, stick in up a bit in between the ring for the production match, uh, for the production team here, because I've seen a Hell in a Cell live, I've seen a Blue Bar Cage match live. They're difficult to see in the crowd, so mm. considering like you've got to try and portray what's happening across such a wider area, mm. let's not forget this is like twice the size of like most matches you would shoot, just in mass. Like I'm if, two rings. I'm wondering if the reason behind the design of those Blue Bar Cages the WF liked was so that the camera could go into the ring and you could see it without having the mesh. Oh well, yeah, you could put a so camera you, through you those the hole, couldn't you? Holes. Yeah, I don't know if they could put it all the way through, but it was just enough, enough. Of the space yeah. for them to do it. I don't know, because I love the blue bar cages, but... I, I, I haven't met a single person who doesn't prefer blue bar. Unless you meet a wrestler who had to wrestle in those things. They yeah. hated the blue bar cage. Yeah, they had no give. Because you, oh. you couldn't do the meshing against the, the, you know, rubbing the face against the mesh of those. Yeah, yeah bloody hurt. Like a kid running along a um, well, fence outside. Well, I think, I think Mick Foley said like, the worst, one of the worst pains he ever had was when he had the blue bar cage door slammed into his head by China. Because again, if it's, if it's the mesh, in theory, it can sort of bounce off of you. Yeah. Because I don't That's think actually the rubbing the and face... China's off. forearms are massive as well, yeah. so don't forget. Well, China was never one for, like, being graceful and not hurting your opponents. Um, yeah. I, I like the four-figure four spots. Yeah, but I didn't really notice it at the, at the start of it. It's only, like, about because halfway through camera. that spot. 
you pick up what's actually happening. Mm, mm. Yeah, um, the, but they sort of move from one... They're all in one ring at some points, but again, there's no... Like I said, with the War Games ones that we saw with the WWE, there was a clear structure at every point they knew where they were supposed to be. In this, it was a free-form improvisational do-what-you-feel-like for the most part. And obviously that works within the, 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 the context of a wild brawl, but when mm. it's something like this that requires some ingenuity in the finish, then there, there needs to be reasonings, I think, behind what the other people are doing. Yeah, whereas in this one, it's sort of like everyone is brawling away. Uh, Sid gets hold of Brian Pillman, mm. um, nearly puts him in a wheelchair... Because I do want to talk. I actually he goes have... for a powerbomb. Pillman's feet gets caught in the ceiling, and he goes basically gets dropped head, shoulder, and neck first on the match. I have to pause it. Uh, it's very rare I actually have to pause a wrestling match because I'm like because of what I've just seen in terms of like wince factor. I actually had to hit the pause button on it because I'm like he, that could he could have been a vegetable. I think he there was serious injuries from that. I think he was possibly out. Yeah. So Sid decides, oh, I'll do it again because it didn't look good that time. And the second one he takes, it becomes more of a flat back bump. Yeah. It, it's it's still... better for Pillman the second one by far. Unless he's It's a really awkward cool power bomb. Yeah. And then we get El Gigante coming out. And this is this is another bit as well, like because he rips off the door of the cage and manages to get over to the other side of the ring. The other side of the other ring, so he cr- he's crossed no, the. No, inter- no, no, he doesn't. He doesn't. He goes towards. He's like he enters just where that where Pillman is. I swear he cuts across. No, Maybe I'm. He doesn't mis- cut across. No, he doesn't. No. Nevertheless, it's still a, a seven foot plus dude getting mm. into the cage. No one, none of the, no one else, no one else picks up on what he's doing. Mm. He's managed to get to Brighton uninterrupted. And then just starts waving his hands like he really emphasizes what he's doing, like which I thought was a good touch for him to well, like yeah. explain what he's doing. I know it's like Billy Billy basics, but it conveyed what he was doing in the ring. And so he calls it off. So it's not a submission because again, it's really hard to, for babyface to submit in general in in the traditions of wrestling, especially at this point. It's it's more when, surrender by where, proxy. Where the tap out, well, it's, it's just stoppage, and the ref, well, the ref makes the decision essentially, and then yeah. they they actually interview Nick Patrick afterwards, and he says, you know, I'm not ashamed, of it. which I liked. It was a good touch, I think. And Patrick sounded like a professional official doing his job, you know. Yeah, it's like I don't want uh, a career-ending injury on my conscience. Yeah, I, stand I, would, by decision. I wouldn't mind more of that. I wouldn't mind more of referees actually being spoken to in different situations. And that doesn't apply to just wrestling, without. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, I don't know if I ever want, want, want to listen to um, Mike Dean, though, about anything. <laughs> Just a personal bit of hatred Do you there. see that goal I helped create? <laughs> oh, I love an advantage. I love an advantage. All right, Mike, but come on. Focus now. <laughs> but let's focus on what we should be talking about, is whether we should give this five stars. Now, I think, I think this might be one of the few times when I might be more negative on a match than you, but I still like this match. Yeah. I just don't... I, I've never been a, as big a fan of the War Games as WCW did. I've always seen the potential in it, and I think WWE could do something truly like a five... I think they made two very good matches, but I don't think they've had the match that I would consider a five-star War Games match um, either. So are you saying... I think I'm from not going to get five stars. There we go. Okay. 
Um, but I can understand why it's a form of wrestling that other people maybe don't want to be as analytical and they just like chaos and it, and it conveys chaos. Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that lets it down, I liked it, I really liked it, and I did toy with the idea of uh, giving it five star in my head, but there's not a lot I remember about it. <laughs> and the five star matches shouldn't be like that. Yeah. It's very good chaos. Like, and, I, and I like war games, and that was a good war games match for me. Um, but it's just like empty television, if you see what I mean in a sense. Because apart from the storyline thread of Brian Pillman, we got there at the start and we got there at the end, and there were like little dabs in the middle where they'd attack his shoulder, but there was no real connecting thread with a lot of the other workers. I just don't think that's how a match should be, especially like an eight-man tag. Yeah. So no, but it was wacky. I I really did like it. Yeah, yeah, it's worth a watch. Yeah, especially if you want to know about the history of war games. If all you know are the two WWE ones, it was. I like the fact there were no pinfalls in this match. I know that goes against how I like sort of had a negative opinion on i quit matches yeah. but in this environment it seems to work because well, it's it's war it's I, literally what it's there for i think one of the reasons they do that is they don't want the ref to be in the ring which they traditionally weren't in a lot of steel cage matches because yeah. they had the escape rules but this wasn't an escape rule well yeah. i think maybe wcw always had a referee there for pinfalls and everything i might be wrong there um but then but then that's what makes it like it's not the most egregious example but there are ones where like there are war games where suddenly the time the ref comes into the ring is only when the submission's about to happen. Yeah, and that's kind of what happens here, but it's explained by the fact that a big seven-foot bloke's just wandered in. But there is so... also one point where I think Sting might have the Scorpion Deathlock on Ric Flair, and Ric Flair's right by the cage, and so they're saying Nick Patrick's there; he can hear what he's saying, you know. Yeah, but I think but he's almost... not in the match. He's yeah. not in the ring. You almost need to make it like an I quit match where there's a microphone there that they're getting someone to quit or something like that. Your favourite kind of match, Simon. Ah, see, the microphone slows everything down. I've covered this. I'm not going down this path again. Well, but... now you have the obvious thing. You could have one of them just tap out. But, you know, it's it's it's, it's, it's an interesting... It's, it's an, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll save that for another day because it's not the last War Games match we will be covering in this discussion show um, series. But what we are going to be discussing next week is another All Japan six-man tag. Yes, we've just had one before, and now we're having another one again with the same four participants, the same six participants as before. Because Mitsuhara Masawa, Toshiaki Kawada, and Kent Kabashi are going to see if they can avenge their previous loss to Jumbo Saruta, Akira Tawe, and Masanobu Fushi. And it's going to be April of 1991 in All Japan Pro Wrestling. Looking forward to that, Simon? I am indeed. I... I, I... Give me more Kawada. Give me more Saru. I, I, I love it. I just love okay. it. Okay. And if people want to get in touch with you about war games or wars or games of any kind, Simon, how can they do? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm signing the Simon Cross free because on my first count, free is the number of people that don't have mullets in this match. I think that's my conservative estimate. Uh, how can people get in touch with you, Lorcan? They can get in touch with me on Twitter, Facebook, Letterboxd, Instagram, l- all those sort of things by looking up Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for A in Lorcan and N for N in... Uh, not Lorcan. Not Lorcan, yeah. 
Uh, so they can do it through all those places. And we should also now note, Simon, this will be the last time in this series that we're covering a match with, well, Sid Vicious. Um, so I don't know. Also, the last match we'll be covering, well, the only match we'll be covering with the Steiner brothers. It's the only match we'll be covering with Brian Pillman in. It's the last match, no, it's not the last match for Barry Windham, sorry. Um... It is Flair's last but one. But it is it? our last one for Ric Flair. So, what do we feel like saying? I, I feel we have to, like, you know, we can't just let Flair pass. We've watched so much of him. Um, I can see why um, Sir Dave of Meltzer was so keen on Flair's work at this time. Um, we haven't been as generous as Dave has. Um, I think that's just because times progressed and maybe we're being like a bit picky because there's a five star rating against it potentially maybe we're assholes maybe because we are assholes i mean yeah. um we can let's not rule that out that as a possibility <laughs> no. um but his work around his time uh that last match against steamboat i love that match that was a really good match um some of his work with Wyndham really 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 good um you and i had a little bit of a difference of opinion a little bit on the funk match but that was what it was. What I, what I think, I, what I like is that these matches show that Ric Flair wasn't a one-trick pony. He did mm. do a particular trick a lot. Yeah, but he could change things up. There were enough tweaks and differences when he's a challenger, as opposed to when he's a champion, when he's facing off against a, a contemporary, as opposed to a youngster or a veteran, as you would or a psychopath. Charlie Race when he um, faces Funk. Yeah, and as a face or as a heel, he's different. Um, and I think maybe he he's taken a huge confidence knock at this point. He's dealing with Jim Hurd. This is around the time he starts to think, well, you know, he's gone from WWE. Is this around the time they um, time. try the Spartacus pitch on him? Well, as you notice, he's, his hair is shorter at this point. And yeah. that was a Jim Hurd suggestion. Jim wanted him to get his hair cut and put an earring in his ear and be called Spartacus. That's right. They wanted to do a gimmick repackage of Ric Flair. Uh, Rick, like if you Flair, read about us, like, he wanted the ding dongs, didn't he? Um, well, they did the ding dongs. It's the hunchbacks that you're thinking that he wanted to do that they never did. Ah, yeah, that was it. Sorry, yeah. But um, I think maybe, and I don't think Ric Flair ever necessarily recovered from that. Is is only five star performance in the WWE really five star? is his work in the 1992 Royal Rumble, which many people consider the greatest Royal Rumble of all time. Um, and then by the time he comes back to WCW, he still has some great moments with Vader. Some people will probably cite his five star his match against Vader at Starcade 93 as a five-star match. Um, but then after that, when Hogan comes in, he sort of becomes an afterthought at times, even when he's world champ. Yeah. There to help Hogan look good. More than anything. And, and then, then there's the whole NWO. Yeah, and then he's just past his prime at that point anyway. And then when he comes to the WWE's and the nostalgia acts, and he, he himself admits at various points he had issues with his own self-confidence and self-belief. You'd yeah. see glimmers, but I think it's not... No one's out of order if they think that he was at the very least the best wrestler of the 80s. And if you think he's the best wrestler of all time, you can make your case. Now, like a lot of people subscribe to that theory. He pushed himself in ways that I don't think anyone's ever been asked to do since then. He was the last of that breed of touring champions. Yeah. And you saw that especially in the first Barry Windham match, what, what's required of the touring champ. 
And then as he becomes the focal point of Jim Crockett, he becomes a different kind of champ in, in that regards, where he's the out-and-out heel, as opposed to having to be able to switch it up depending on the territory. You know, the Ric Flair that's facing off against Kerry Von Erich's a little bit different in Texas is a little bit different to the one that's facing off against Dusty Rhodes in the Carolinas or in Florida, you know? And that's sort of the point. I mean, one of the key tenets of doing wrestling well is you make yourself and your opponent look good. So there's he, still he money to that. be made. And no one has done it as many times for as long a period as Ric Flair did. Mm. Well, let's hope we continue to try and make people look good Make each other look good. What do you say about that, Simon, you utter simpleton? <laughs> I think we've got a bit of an uphill struggle there on both sides. <laughs> you should have called me a self-indulgent arsehole or something at that point. <laughs> your comeback spot. But anyway, that's been uh, the last of Ric Flair, but not the last of this series. We'll be back in a couple of days' time, like I said, with another All Japan six-man tag. But until then, my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star time. Until the next time. Black Caesar, dating top divas.